Hello, and welcome to the Scriptures Are Real podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about elements of the scriptures that have become real to us, which helps us draw more power from them, and we need that power. I'm your host, Kerry Mielstein, and I'm thrilled today to start off our week of studying Isaiah with some background and kind of bridging some gaps for us and and doing some things that I hope just makes all of Isaiah make sense, and certainly uh, some of the chapters that we're reading this week. But uh, part of the issue is that um, in the way Come Follow Me has set this up, and they've done a, a wonderful job, but uh, we're skipping the historical chapters. And there's a reason for that. We covered those same chapters when we were doing uh, the historical readings in Second Kings. So Isaiah 36 and 37 and, and part of uh, parts of 38, 39 are covered in First Kings 18 and 19 and so on. So uh, they figure we've already read this and we know the historical stuff. We can uh, move on. And in a way, that's true. But I find that typically we need to be reminded of this. And, and I want to remind us of some bigger picture things, some things that have happened even earlier in Isaiah. Because I think this sets up one of the major, major themes of Isaiah, one of the most important elements of Isaiah, both in terms of what Isaiah is teaching and in terms of what happened during Isaiah's ministry. So let's go all the way back to the days of King Ahaz. We're going back to Isaiah chapter 7 through 9. Remember that at this time, Isaiah is a fairly young prophet. He is trying to get both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom to repent and to keep their covenants with God, to trust in God enough to keep the covenant and then believe that God will keep his end of the covenant, which includes protection. So the Assyrian Empire was expanding at the time. And you will remember we talked about this, that uh, Syria and Israel did not want to come under the control of the Assyrian Empire. And uh, Israel, rather than saying, "Okay, let's trust in God, let's focus on keeping our covenant, uh, they focused on the ways of the world. And they uh, tried to get their army, and they had a bigger army than the southern kingdom and so on, but then more chariots and whatever. But they, they focused on that. They focused on making an alliance with Syria, and they wanted to make an alliance with Judah. So part of the reason that the northern kingdom will be scattered during Isaiah's ministry is because they trusted in the power of man rather than the power of God. And they, they did things that made sense to the world rather than doing things that made no sense to the world, but that God told them to do. I hope you start to think of yourself uh, all along here and ask yourself, where do you fit in with this? Now, they want Judah to ally themselves with them uh, to, so that they can have the three countries. And I think they'd like to Moab and Edom and others to ally with them as well. But the one we know about is Judah, uh, and hoping that those three countries together will be able to resist Assyria. Judah is not so sure, and I, I believe I went over this a little bit before, but I want to recap this. Ahaz is presented with a difficult choice. First of all, if you're just thinking about things from the point of view of the world, he has a superpower coming his way, and his choices are to resist that superpower and ally himself with Syria and Israel and trust in the strength of the three kingdoms to resist the superpower or to ally himself with the superpower to resist Israel and Syria, because Israel and Syria want to force Judah to be part of their alliance if they won't do it voluntarily. As according to the way the world thinks, those are the two choices that he has. That, and those are the only two choices he has, really. And so he's going to choose the more powerful worldly force, and he chooses to ally himself with Assyria. Isaiah is sent by God to tell him, don't do any of the above. 
God has a different option. It's don't do anything. Just wait and trust in God. I'll take care of it. You just wait. Now, would there have been some trials and some difficulties during the waiting period? Absolutely. Absolutely, there would have been. But would God have been able to deliver them? Yes. So Ahaz is presented with the choice that we are often presented with. Go with the way the world tells us things work and the way that things make sense to the world, or go with the way that doesn't fully make sense to us because we're partially fallen men and of the world, but that makes sense to God. Do it God's way, choose God's option, and let God take care of things. Ahaz chooses the world's way. And as a result, Assyria takes control of Judah. They they do rescue them from Israel and Assyria, but then they take control of Judah and they uh, demand payment and so on. And so we will go a number of years where Judah is a vassal of Assyria. And uh, this becomes too great a burden for them to carry. Uh, they, they carry it the rest of Ahaz's day, but by the time you get to his son Hezekiah, and Hezekiah has been reigning for a while, this becomes too burdensome. Not only is it uh, in terms of goods and wealth and so on that they're paying a huge amount so that this is always flowing. It's just hard to even survive because they're having to send so many of their goods to Assyria, but they're having to send their children their youth to Assyria, to serve in the army, to serve as servants and all those kinds of things. It's a terrible situation. And and you can imagine uh, what that would be like for you if your children were the ones chosen to be tribute to Assyria, your daughters, who knows what kind of servitude they will end up going through. Your sons could either go through that kind of servitude or uh, end up serving in a war. And of course, they're always going to be the ones put in the forefront of the battle and so on. Uh, and this becomes too great a burden after a while. So Hezekiah is also given a choice. What do I do about this? And his choice is to rebel. And initially, Hezekiah is going to follow his father's footsteps. He is going to do things the way the world tells him to do it. And we have just a couple of clues about this. So uh, we, we read these verses and we made a bit of a deal about them in chapter 22. But let's read them again. In chapter 22, uh, we're looking at verse 8. And he discovered the covering of Judah, and thou didst look in that day to the armor of the house of the forest. So the house of the forest was a big uh, uh, room in the palace that had lots of co wooden columns in it, but it's also where they kept the armory. So basically saying you're relying on your arms, your military might. You've also seen the breaches of the city of David, that they are many. So they went and looked at the wall and saw that they needed to do some building, uh, fixing the wall, and they needed to actually build a new wall because they'd had so many people, refugees from the northern kingdom, move in uh, and were having refugees from the southern kingdom as Assyria was starting to come that way, move in, that they, they couldn't fit inside the wall. So they were building outside the walls and had to build a new wall. Also, you gathered together the waters of the lower pool. So that's where they uh, diverted the Gihon Spring through what we now call Hezekiah's Tunnel uh, down to the Siloam Pool uh, and so on. You've numbered the houses of Jerusalem and the houses have you broken down to fortify the wall. I think we showed some pictures of that once uh, where the there's archaeological evidence. We see this big broad wall that Hezekiah built and then it goes right through a house. Uh, you made a ditch between the two walls for the water of the old pool. We've, we've talked about that already. That's Hezekiah's tunnel. But ye have not looked unto the maker thereof, neither had respect unto him that fashioned it long ago. So the problem is not that they're doing what they can to prepare. That's good. 
But it's that they're doing that without asking God, what should we do? Without turning to God as their primary refuge. Their primary refuge, the primary thing they're turning to are the ways of the world, not the ways of God. They're not uh, looking to God and asking him, what should we do? All right. We have some other evidence of this from some other chapters uh, that we've already covered, although some of them we were never assigned to read. I don't think we were assigned to read 22, and I think we're not assigned to read some of the chapters I'm going to read now and last week. Uh, so I'm going to read just bits and pieces of some of these. Uh, and then I have also this, the second video for this week goes through some of those as well, chapter 32 especially, and 35 and so on. 35 was assigned last week, but I think 32 wasn't. But we're going to turn right now to chapter 30. Chapter 30 says, Woe to the rebellious children, saith the Lord, that take counsel, but not of me, and that cover with the covering, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, that walk to go down into Egypt, and have not asked at my mouth, to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh, and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. So this is where we learn that Hezekiah has decided, as part of his preparations, he's decided he's going to rebel against Assyria. So besides uh, preparing Jerusalem, and you would assume that he's uh, strengthening the other strongholds, Azekah and Lachish and uh, Gezer and places like that. Uh, you would assume that besides that, or that, that he's doing that, but he also is seeking an alliance with Egypt. Uh, he is turning to another military uh, presence to help them resist Assyria. So his father had chosen not to do that, but had uh, chosen the superpower of Syria as his strength. But this is still similar. He's choosing an alliance, but it's still choosing the help of men. And he hasn't asked God. God's very clear about that. You took counsel, but not of me. Right. And you, you didn't ask at my mouth. And so Hezekiah is trusting in military might, his own and that of the Egyptians. And this is what God has to say about it, because that's what he's doing. Therefore, shall the strength of Pharaoh be your shame, and the trust in the shadow of Egypt your confusion. For his princes, as presumably Hezekiah's princes, were at Zoan, which is probably Tanis, and his ambassadors came to Hanes. So he sent princes and ambassadors down to Egypt. They were all ashamed of a people that could not profit them, nor help them, nor profit, but a shame and also a reproach. So what he's saying is, Egypt's not going to end up being a help to you. You can go and seek all of that, but they're not enough to save you from Assyria. So let's, let's just go to the next chapter, chapter 31. Woe to them that go down to Egypt for help and stay, meaning trust in uh, horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but they look not unto the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Lord. Ye also, ye, yeah, sorry, yet he also is wise and will bring evil and will not call back his words, but will arise against the house of evildoers and against the help of them that work iniquity. So God is going to come out in judgment against Judah because they have not trusted in God. They haven't sought to find out what options he would give them, what he would tell them to do. Instead, they are trusting in man. So, so far, Hezekiah is following in his father's footsteps in that, not in idolatry. It has also turned to idolatry, but in terms of, well, a kind of idolatry, the kind of idolatry where you trust in man's way of thinking and in man's values rather than in God's. And that's going to end up being a, a big problem. Now, fortunately, we're going to keep reading um, what, what Isaiah prophesies, but fortunately, Hezekiah actually listens to Isaiah. 
And we talked early on about how there's attrition that uh, in some ways Isaiah is his cousin and he may be his father-in-law as well. Maybe that's part of what helps him get uh, the king's ear. But for one, whatever reason, Hezekiah, bless his heart, is willing to be chastised by the prophet and respond correctly and learn from it. Uh, that's the difference between him and his father. Isaiah also came to Ahaz and warned Ahaz, and Ahaz ignored him. Hezekiah does not ignore him, but instead is moved deeply to action, and that's very, very powerful. So we're going to, to continue to read a little bit in 31, uh, and we're going to say go to verse 6. Turn ye unto him from whom the children of Israel have deeply revolted. So that's God. They've revolted against God. They're turning to mankind. And he's saying, instead, return to me. For in that day, the, the day that you will turn back to me. So verse seven, in that day, every man shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your own hands have made unto you for a sin. So that literally happens. Hezekiah, once he listens to Isaiah and starts to lead the people in a national repentance, but it ends up being largely a Jerusalem repentance. And as he leads them in that, they literally take their idols and toss them into the Jezreel Valley and they bury them, burn them, all sorts of things. Uh, they get rid of their idols. This happens literally. Now, I hope that we also start to think of how this can apply in our day. I, I hope you're thinking of that all along. How am I trusting in the ways of the world? How am I listening to the world more than to his prophet? Right. If the prophet says this is what we need to do in terms of how we get our, our information, where we how we spend our time, how we think about families and marriage, how we uh, respond to, um, I don't know, the, the calamities of the world. The prophet will tell us one thing. The world will tell us other things. Your question is, are you going to listen to the prophet of the world? That's really your question. Which which way will you respond? Uh, and if you will turn to him and get rid of your idols, and today I think our biggest idol is believing what the world tells us about how to think about social issues and all sorts of other things and allowing the world to influence our values and our loves. But whatever your idol is, and we have we all have lots of them, it's not a question of if, it's a question of what they are. So when we will get rid of them, we get verse 8. Then shall the Assyrian fall with the sword, not of a mighty man. And the sword, not of a mean man, shall devour him, but he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall be discomfited. Now, this also will literally happen. The Assyrians will flee. We'll talk about that in a moment. And he shall pass over to his stronghold for fear. So he's going to run back home. Uh, and his princes shall be afraid of the end Zion, saith the Lord, whose fire is in Zion and his furnace in Jerusalem. So this idea that God will raise up a powerful and mighty army. Now we continue on to verse 32 and I cover verse 32 in a different, uh, one of my little class episodes I'm putting out for you in, in quite a bit. So I'm not going to go too into depth in this, but there are a couple of things we do need to look at. So there's no break in thought between the end of chapter 31 and the beginning of verse 30 or chapter 32. Behold, a king shall reign in righteousness and princes shall rule in judgment. In some ways, this has to be Hezekiah and Eliakim. Of course, in some ways, it's Christ and those who uh, serve him. And it has a number of fulfillments, uh, th possible fulfillments. Uh, so verse two, and a man shall be as a hiding from the wind, a hiding place from the wind and a covert from the tempest and so on. So this idea that, that there will be protection, probably most especially this king, but uh, anyone that's serving God will be protection uh, against the terrible things of life. 
Uh, and, and we get verse three, the eyes of them uh, that shall that see shall not be dim and the ears of them that hear shall hearken. This hearkens back in some ways to Isaiah's call in, in chapter six and saying now people are really going to start to listen and understand. Remember, when Isaiah was called in chapter six, uh, he was told to, to speak in a way that that those who weren't prepared uh, would not be able to see and would not be able to hear. And he asked how long. And God said, until the cities are desolate. Well. The cities in Judah are desolate by this time. Uh, the Assyrian king Sennacherib is destroying left and right, and uh, we're this this finally people start to listen to Isaiah. So there's some fulfillment of what happens in Isaiah chapter six. The heart also of the rational understand knowledge. That's what wasn't going to happen in chapter six, but is happening now. The tongue of the stammerer shall be ready to speak plainly. Uh, again, they're going to understand there's real healing here, but it's also spiritual and understanding. And this harkens back to some things we talked about with chapter 28. Um, let's uh, let's jump down just a little bit more um, and look at where it says... Uh, Verse 14, because the palaces shall be forsaken, the multitude of the city shall be left, the forts and the towers shall be dens forever, a joy of wild asses. So we've got all this destruction that's happened. Verse 15, until the spirit be poured out upon us from on high and the wilderness be a fruitful field and the fruitful field be counted for a forest, then judgment shall dwell on the wilderness and the work of the righteousness shall be peace and the effects of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. So this is a prophecy that when they will turn to God, that things will get better. So. Let's let's think through, and we get in chapter thirty-three prophecies about uh, the Assyrians, and and though they come and do all sorts of terrible things, they're going to uh, have uh, these terrible things happen to them. Well, let's talk. Just make sure we understand historically what happens, and this will be just a reminder of some of the things that you studied back when you did Second Kings. But the Assyrian king Sennacherib, because uh, Isaiah starts to withhold this tribute, comes through. And he is a destructive, destructive guy. I think I mentioned back then, uh, and we had this uh, podcast with Gay Strathern that I think would be worth your, your listening to again. Uh, but uh, Sennacherib, I've seen archaeologists who can say, oh, we know we fit the Sennacherib level. There's a bigger layer of ash and it burned hotter than anywhere else, right? You can always tell Sennacherib because he burns things so completely uh and and the way he destroys and he destroys city after city we talked about how he comes down and he destroys uh Azekah and Lachish and so on um and then he sends Rob Sheke and others to the walls of Jerusalem with a force as the main force is going to join them there but they have a force that starts to lay siege to Jerusalem uh and by the way this is one of those examples of prophecies uh, that don't have to come to pass. Isaiah prophesies about the terrible things that are going to happen, and they happen to, to Judah, but not fully to Jerusalem. Uh, it, but he prophesies that they will happen because they are trusting in man rather than God. But as soon as Hezekiah starts to trust in God, then those prophecies can be averted, right? They're, and that's good. We're happy that it can happen that way. In any case, uh, Rob Sheke comes and he starts to try to intimidate the people. And he says, look, you, you can't trust Ezekiah. He's look at how he's offended God. He tore down uh, altars and so on. Well, let's remember what Hezekiah had done. Hezekiah had led them in national repentance. So he tried to get rid of every form of idolatry he could find. He got the people in Jerusalem to cast down their idols. Uh, he got rid of, there were temples and high places elsewhere in uh, Judah that at one point had been 
okay. They'd been Orthodox. They'd been kosher. They, they had been to Jehovah and were worshiping Jehovah faithfully. But the problem is that Judah just kept turning to idolatry. So all these places for Jehovah kept turning to idolatry. The temple had started to as well, and we'll see that it does again in Jeremiah's day. Uh, but they keep turning to idolatry. So Hezekiah says, I can control Jerusalem. So they get rid of all of the idolatrous things in Jerusalem. Other places, he's not so sure he can control the idolatry that happens there. And so he will tear down temples and altars at high places and all sorts of things. He'll get rid of them as he tries to uh, stamp out idolatry. And he will say, okay, now all of these rituals can only happen in Jerusalem. That's the only place. That's a reform he enacts to try and control and get rid of idolatry. Josiah will do the same thing later. Uh, now, this gets a little confusing in the Bible because there that's being written probably in hezekiah and josiah's day maybe later i don't know but these these historical chapters and so in their day the all those high places are not okay so they keep talking about all the high places are not okay even though there's plenty of evidence even in the bible that, that at one point they were okay samuel has high places he goes to and does sacrifices and so on um that's that's a little anachronistic. That's them saying, okay, it's not okay, so it probably was never okay. It's a little bit like us saying, okay, we can't drink wine. Well, then the Savior must have been drinking grape juice rather than wine because we try to retroject the word of wisdom, but it, that wasn't a prohibition. They they could drink wine, right? So we see them doing that a little bit. Rob Shecky comes and tries to strike some fear into them. Okay, first of all, no gods have protected uh, their people against the Assyrians and their gods, so don't think that Jehovah's going to do it. Secondly, you, I don't even if Jehovah could, you should, probably shouldn't believe that he would because uh, Hezekiah has been throwing down uh, his altars and so on. It wasn't his altars very well. I mean, they, they had originally been to him, but they'd become corrupted. But that's the way he's going to paint it. Just like today, we have all sorts of people who paint and say, oh, you can't trust uh, what your prophets are saying because they're not really based in love and they don't really understand what Jesus would. It's not the way Jesus would have done it, which is not true, just like what Rob Sheke uh, said wasn't true. Anyway, he tries to scare the people. And you remember Eliakim, the one who'd been put in place of Shebna and had the, the robes and the marks of the, the key of the house of David put on his shoulder and so on. Uh, he's one of these guys that's at the wall dealing with Rabsheke and, and the ambassadors of Assyria. Uh, but the Assyrian army is, is beginning to lay siege to Jerusalem. And then they hear that the Egyptian army arrives. The Egyptians honor their treaty and they send an army to fight. And so they leave Jerusalem and they join that larger army that was on its way to Jerusalem, but instead go to fight the Egyptians. And the way the Bible tells the story is that somewhere in there, the uh, Assyrians are smitten and, and they wake up and they find that they're all dead. And you can read that either the Assyrians wake up to find themselves dead or that the opposing armies wake up and find that the Assyrians are all dead. They're smitten by God. Now, is that does that mean that the Egyptians were successful in their battle and, and it's attributed to God? Maybe. And that would be a valid thing. Uh, does it doesn't mean that there was a plague and the Egyptians didn't really even have to fight them or they fought them a little bit and then a plague came. We don't know. The interesting thing to me is that this uh, the Egyptians absolutely play a role in the Assyrians leaving and Jerusalem being miraculously spared. Um, but the the Egyptians play some kind of role that it would not have been successful if Hezekiah hadn't turned to God and trusted in God and done that, renewed the covenant, uh, renewed everything and tried to get everyone to really 
serve God with all their heart, might, mind, and strength, really keeping the covenant. If they hadn't done that, then the Egyptians would not have been a successful role. With that, the Egyptians played a role in what ended up being successful. And that's often the case, that we just have to trust in God. And then he can make things that wouldn't work, work, make things we would have never even thought could happen, will happen, and so on, if we will trust in God. Now, it would have been wonderful if they'd done this right away. I don't know, but I guess that the, the absolute devastation and decimation of the Judean countryside would not have happened if they'd started trusting in God immediately. I don't really know. Uh, and we need to recognize that it was devastation. All of the cities, except for Jerusalem, are burned, destroyed, crops destroyed. It It's horrific what happened. Absolutely horrific. And it will take a while to recover. They will recover and they'll have a period of prosperity and peace but it will take a little while. Uh, I don't know if that could have been avoided or not if they turned to God early on. I think so, but I am grateful that we can learn from Hezekiah who did turn to God. And there's a lesson for us in this. Even if we we make mistakes, even if we start listening to the world, if God's always ready to accept us back, if we will just come back, he will accept us back. And then miracles can happen and will happen in our lives, as President Nelson asked us to look for and expect miracles in our lives. And so that's a wonderful thing. We can get all of this um, help from God from all sorts of things, including the the things that we do to prepare, including powers that that uh, we are seem worldly or whatever. Those things will work when we trust in God, and they don't work when we don't trust in God. That's an important and amazing lesson that we need to learn. And then I want us to go to chapter 40 and see what this means. It's actually the beginning of this. Uh, there are verses that we recognize because uh, Handel set them to music in a beautiful and powerful way. So you'll, you'll immediately, as I read them, you'll start to hear songs going through your head and so on. Um, but sometimes that does us a little bit of a disservice. I love it, uh, but it does us a disservice sometimes because we take it out of context. So let's put this back in context. Chapter 40, uh, which is a significant chapter, and I've got, uh, it's the beginning of a huge chiasmus, so one of the episodes this week will walk you through that chiasmus. Some people think that this is when you get what we call second Isaiah. I've addressed that before. I don't think that's, I'm just not convinced by that at all. We're not going to get into that here. But it's also the first chapter after these historical chapters, 36 through 39, where we get the coming of the Assyrian army, the miraculous sparing of Jerusalem. We get a report about um, uh, Babylon visiting, and we can't place that in time. It may be maybe even probably before the Assyrian invasion, maybe after, we don't know, uh, Hezekiah's life being preserved and all these things. 40 is the first chapter after all of that, and it seems like especially after the Assyrian invasion and the miraculous deliverance of Jerusalem and the devastation that has happened in Jerusalem. So with all of that in mind, think of how Isaiah's people would take this when Isaiah says, comfort ye, well, he's speaking for God, right? Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. The time for comfort has come. They have renewed the covenant. They will experience, <clears throat> they will experience those covenant blessings. They have experienced them. The emphasis where when it says my people, that's an emphasis on that they are that that's covenant language. That's a covenant term. They are God's people because they have made a covenant with them. So it's a phrase that's used to denote the covenant. So it says, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith my God. In other words, You've kept the covenant, and now I've kept the covenant. You've been delivered. Now you can find comfort. Though it was terrible and difficult, now you can find comfort. 
Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned. For she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So they paid a price, but they've been forgiven because they came back to God. They've been forgiven and the war is over. They can be done with that. That's so wonderful and beautiful. Now we get in verse three, uh, a verse that's famous. And I want us to see you can look at this in a number of ways. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Again, we we know that, that one of the, probably the primary fulfillment of that is John the Baptist. Uh, Matthew points that out. Nephi and Lehi point that out. John the Baptist prepares the way for God. He comes out of the wilderness and prepares the way for Jesus Christ's ministry and for Christ himself. But this has other fulfillments as well. In Isaiah's day, in some ways, this is Isaiah. He's the one that cried, and it's he's in Jerusalem, but it's like out of the wilderness because he's the only one that's saying this initially. Um, let's let's get ready for God. Let's prepare the way and, and make, uh, I love this imagery, make straight, in the desert, a highway for our God will continue on. And again, you'll you'll hear the, the song in your head, but I want you to think of this imagery. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. This isn't talking about, whoa, some big earthquake. This is imagery to say this path, this highway is going to be easy. There's not going to be hills and valleys where you have to dip down and climb back up. The valleys are going to be brought up, the hills brought down, so it's just one nice level path. It's not going to be, have to be crooked and going around rivers or mountains or anything like that. It's going to be an easy, straight path to God. Now, in some ways, I think this is the covenant path. I, I believe that's one of the fulfillments of this, one of the images. Uh, and what it seems to be saying is we prepare a way to get to God right? A, a highway for our God. And it's going to be made where, where you can do this. And what is is that way more than the covenant path? You make covenants and it, that's the way that brings you to God and God prepares it. He makes It's a way we couldn't go on our own. But once we start keeping the covenant because of God's covenant promises, he enables us to get there, to get to him through Christ, right? Uh, it's, it's beautiful, powerful stuff. Um, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Again, in Isaiah's day, everyone's going to take this as okay. He, he prepared a way. He made it possible. Though it seemed impossible to escape the Assyrians, he made it possible. Now everyone can see that God is powerful. The mighty Assyrian king Sennacherib, who destroys everybody, ran home with his tail between his legs. And he doesn't come back. He will brag about having destroyed Azekah and Lachish and about having uh, besieged Jerusalem. But he ends there because everybody knows he can't say he took Jerusalem and he doesn't come back to try and reconquer them. What happened was too terrifying to him. He knows this is someplace he shouldn't mess with. God is on their side. Right. And so we do get the glory of the Lord being revealed. Now, does that happen in Christ's day? Absolutely. Will it happen in the millennial day? Absolutely. And hopefully it's happening in your life in some ways. The voice said, cry. And he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and the goodness thereof is as the flower of the field. This is this imagery. Grass grows and fades. It's it's temporary. Uh, it's like Hevel or, or vanity in Ecclesiastes that we just recently did. Um, verse seven, the grass withereth, the flower fadeth because the spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Do you see what he's saying? You tell me what to say. The, 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 
messenger. So in some ways, this is Isaiah. In some ways, it's John the Baptist. In some ways, it's Joseph Smith. In some ways, it's you as you preach the gospel. And what should I say? I don't want to say the things of man because whatever man teaches just comes and goes. And think of the trends. I mean, it's so trendy what to, to think, what to believe, what we get mad at people for saying, what we don't get mad at them for saying. It just changes so quickly. Um, that's like the grass and the flower that fades. But the word of God stands forever. You preach what God says, it's going to stand. That's why we should listen to our prophets, right? Conference is almost here. Oh, how we should be so glad for that as we hear words that will stand forever. Oh, Zion, and remember Zion is the hill, a hill in Jerusalem, so this is a way of referring to Jerusalem. It's also a way of referring to just God's people in general that are trying to follow him unitedly, but it's referring in some ways specifically to Jerusalem. O Zion, that bring us good tidings, get thee up unto the high mountains, O Jerusalem. There's that parallel, or under uh, the high mountains. And we're going to say, O Jerusalem, but that's the parallelism that lets us know Zion and Jerusalem, same place. O Jerusalem, that bring us good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Do you see what he's saying? You were spared, Judah, or Jerusalem. You were spared. Now go tell everyone else that's out there in the hillside and countryside that survived. Tell them, behold what God has done. We need to all repent and renew our covenant and come to God the same way we did in Jerusalem. Uh, look at what happens when you do. This is a miracle. Everyone turn to this. Does that have uh, fulfillments in Christ's day? Absolutely. Will it have fulfillments in our day? Absolutely. Should it be having a fulfillment in your life right now? Absolutely. But we understand those better by understanding how it would have been taken in Isaiah's day. Behold, the Lord will come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. And he shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom, and they shall gently lead those that are with young. You, you see the, the point. There is a period of peace and prosperity coming. After Assyria leaves from uh Isaiah through Josiah, and, and it really starts saying right at the end of Josiah's life as the Egyptians killed Josiah, you get this period of peace and prosperity that Judah hasn't known for a while. Uh, the war is over and things are going to be great and God is taking care of them because they renewed this covenant and, and they kept it with all their heart. That's beautiful stuff. That's really uh, wonderful stuff, and uh, and hopefully it, we understand how it happened in their day, and we can see that it will happen in our life, and we will take great courage in that and do things God's way rather than the world's way because we've seen the results of both by studying the stories of Ahaz and Hezekiah. Um, we're going to skip down to, say, verse 28. Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary? There is no searching of his understanding. He giveth power to the faint, and them, to them that have no might, he increaseth strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. That's where we first encounter that phraseology. That's really fantastic stuff, because what he's saying is, look, we've seen it. We've seen that when you trust in God, that even those who are, there's no way Jerusalem could withstand um, Assyria. But when you trust in God, it will work out. And then you'll mount up as with eagle's wings. <clears throat> Chapter 41. 
Keep silence before me, O islands, and let the people renew their strength. Let them come near, let them speak, let us come nearer together to judgment. Who raised up the righteous man from the east and called him to his foot and gave the nations before him and made him rule over kings? He gave them as the dust to his sword and as the driven stubble to his bow. He pursued them and passed safely. And we get all this imagery of God rescuing Jerusalem from these invaders from the east and so on, and that everyone will know it. Uh, we're not going to continue on. I think we've we've made our point here. We're going to move on to chapters to talk about the servant, and and we've got some videos and and uh, audio episodes that uh, for my class will help understand that. But what I want us to understand here in this first episode is how real it was that when they decided to trust in God, God delivered them, and the comfort that comes from that. And then I want that to become real in our lives. And I hope the study in Isaiah in this way makes that real for you as well. Thank you.